Chapter 26 of Lives of Poor Boys Who Became Famous. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Smith. Lives of Poor Boys Who Became Famous by Sarah Knowles Bolton. Chapter 26. George W. Childs. The Public Ledger of Philadelphia and its owner are known the world over. Would we see the large-hearted, hospitable millionaire who has come to honor through his own industry? Let us enter the elegant building occupied by his newspaper. Every portion is interesting. The rooms where editors and assistants work are large, light, and airy, and as tasteful as parlors. Alas, how unhomelike and barren are some of the newspaper offices where gifted men toil from morning till night, with little time for sleep, and still less for recreation. Mr. Childs has thought of the comfort and health of his workmen, for he too was a poor boy and knows what it is to labor. He has also been generous with his men in the matter of wages. He refused to reduce the rate of payment of his compositors, notwithstanding that the typographical union had formally sanctioned a reduction, and notwithstanding that the reduced scale was operative in every printing office in Philadelphia except his own. He said, My business is prosperous. Why should not my man share in my prosperity? The act of graciousness, while it endeared him to the hearts of his beneficiaries, was commented on most favorably at home and abroad, that his employees, in a formal interview with him, expressed their willingness to accept the reduced rates, simply augments the generosity of his act. Strikes among laborers would be few and far between if employers were like George W. Childs. Each person in his employ has a summer vacation of two or more weeks, his wages being continued meantime and paid in advance, with a liberal sum besides. On Christmas, every man, woman, and boy receives a present, amounting, of course, to many thousands of dollars annually. Mr. Childs has taken care of many who have become old or disabled in his service. The foreman of his composing room had worked for him less than 12 months before he failed in health. For years, this man has drawn his weekly pay, though never going to the establishment. This is indeed practical Christianity. Besides caring for the living, in 1868, this wise employer of labor purchased 2,000 feet in woodlands for a printer's cemetery and gave it to the Philadelphia Typographical Society with a sum of money to keep the grounds in good order yearly. The first person buried beyond the handsome marble Gothic gateway was a destitute and aged printer who had died at the almshouse and whose dying message to Mr. Childs was that he could not bear to fill a pauper's grave. His wish was cordially granted. But after seeing the admirable provision made for his workmen, we must enter the private office of Mr. Childs. He is most accessible to all, with no airs of superior position, welcoming persons from every clime daily. Between the hours of eleven and one, he listens courteously to any requests, and then bids you Make yourself at home in this elegant office that certainly has no superior in the world, perhaps no rival. The room itself in the Queen Anne style with exquisite wood carving marble tiles, brass ornaments, and painted glass is a gem. Here is his motto, a noble one and thoroughly American. Nil sin labor, and well his life has illustrated it. All honor to every man or woman who helps to make labor honored in this country. The design of the ceiling was suggested by a room in Coombe Bay Abbey, Warwickshire, the seat of the Earl's Craven. 
fitted up by one of its lords for the reception of Queen Elizabeth. Over a dozen valuable clocks are seen, one made in Amsterdam over 200 years ago, which besides the time of day gives the phases of the moon, the days of the week, and the month. Another clock constructed by David Rittenhouse, the astronomer of the revolution in the old colonial days, which plays a great variety of music, has a little planetarium attached and nearly 6,000 teeth and wheels. It was made for Joseph Potts, who paid $640 for it. The Spanish minister in 1778 offered 800 for it, that he might present it to his sovereign. Mr. Childs has about 50 rare clocks in his various homes, one of these costing $6,000. Here is a marble statuette of Savonarola, the Florentine preacher of the 15th century. The little green harp, which belonged to Tom Orr and on which he used to play in the homes of the great, a colossal suite of antique French armor, 150 years old. A miniature likeness of George Washington, handsomely encased in gold, bequeathed by him to a relative, a lock of his hair in the back of the picture, a miniature ship made from the wood of the Alliance frigate, the only one of her first navy, of the class of frigates, which escaped capture or destruction during the Revolutionary War. This boat and a silver waiter presented after the famous Battle of New Orleans were both the property of President Jackson and were taken by him to the Hermitage. Here also is a photograph of old Ironside Stewart in a frame made from the Frigate Constitution in which great victories were achieved. Besides many portraits given by famous people with their autographs, after a delightful hour spent in looking at these choice things, Mr. Childs bids us take our choice of some rare china cups and saucers. We choose one dainty with red birds and carry it away as a pleasant remembrance of a princely giver in a princely apartment. Mr. Childs has had a most interesting history. Born in Baltimore, he entered the United States Navy at 13, where he remained for 15 months. At 14, he came to Philadelphia, poor but with courage and a quick mind, and found a place to work in a bookstore. Here he remained for four years, doing his work faithfully and to the best of his ability. At the end of these years, he had saved a few hundred dollars and opened a little store for himself in the Ledger Building, where the well-known newspaper, The Public Ledger, was published. He was ambitious, as who is not, that comes to prominence, and one day he made the resolution that he would sometime be the owner of this great paper and its building. Probably had this resolution been known, his acquaintances would have regarded the youth as a little less than crazy. But the boy who willed this had a definite aim. Besides, he was never idle. He was economical. His habits were the best. And why should not such a boy succeed? In three years, when he was 21, he had become the head of a publishing house, Shields and Peterson. He had a keen sense of what the public needed. He brought out Kane's Arctic Expedition, from which the author, Dr. Kane, realized $70,000, 200,000 copies of Peterson's familiar science were sold. Alibone dedicated his great work, Dictionary of English and American Authors, to the energetic and appreciative young publisher. He had now acquired wealth sooner almost than he could have hoped. Before him were bright prospects as a publisher, but the prize that he had set out to win was to own the public ledger.
The opportunity came in December 1864, but his paper was losing money. His friends advised against taking such a burden. He would surely fail, but Mr. Childs had faith in himself. He expected to win where others lost. He bought the property, doubled the subscription rates, lowered the advertising, excluded everything questionable from the columns of his paper, made his editorials brief yet comprehensive, until under his judicious management the journal reached a large circulation of 90,000 daily. For ten years he has given the ledger almanac to every subscriber, costing $5,000 annually. The yearly profits, it is stated, have been $400,000. All this has not been accomplished without thought and labor. Fortune, of course, had come, and fame he built homes, elegant ones, in Philadelphia and at Newport. But these are not simply places in which to spend money, but centers of hospitality and culture. His library is one of the most charming places in this country. The woodwork is carved ebony with gold. The bookshelf six feet high on every side, and the ceiling built in sunken panels, blue and gold. In the center is a table made from ebony brought from Africa by Paul du Chalou. One looks who, with interest upon the handsome volumes of the standard authors, but other things are of deeper interest. Here is an original sermon of Reverend Cotton Mather, the poems of Leah Hunt, which he presented to Charles Dickens. The original manuscript of Nathaniel Hawthorne's Consular Experiences, the first edition of the Scarlet Letter, with a note to Mr. Childs from the great novelist Bryant's manuscript of the first book of the Ilod, James Russell Lowell's June Idol, began in 1850 and finished 18 years afterward. The manuscript of James Finemore Cooper's Life of Captain Richard Summers and Edgar Allan Poe's Murders in the Rue Morgue. Seventeen pages of large paper, written small and close. Here's an autograph letter from Poe, in which he offers to his publishers 33 short stories, enough to fill two large volumes, on the terms which you allowed me before, that is, you receive all profits and allow me 20 copies for distribution to friends. From this it seems that Poe had the usual struggles of literary people. One of the most unique things in the library is the manuscript of our mutual friend, found in fine brown Morocco. The skeleton of the novel is written through several pages, showing how carefully Dickens thought out his plan and his characters. The paper is light blue, written over with dark blue ink, with many erasures and changes. Here are also 56 volumes of Dickinson's work, with an autograph letter in each, from the author to Mr. Childs. Here is Lord Byron's desk on which he wrote Don Juan. Now we look upon the smallest book ever printed, Dante's Divina Commedia, bound in turkey gilt, less than two and one-fourth inches long by one and one-half inches wide. The collection of Mr. and Mrs. S.C. Hall, now the property of Mr. Childs, letters and manuscripts from Lamb Hawthorne, Mary Somerville, Harriet Marinitu, Coleridge, Woodsworth, Browning, and hundreds of others, is of almost priceless value. In 1879, Miss Hall gave the Bible of Tom Moore to Mr. Childs, an honored and much-loved citizen of the United States, as the best and most valuable offering she could make to him as a grateful tribute of respect, regard, and esteem. 
Another valuable book is made up of the portraits of the presidents, with an autographed letter from each. Don Pedro Brazil sent, in 1876, a work on his empire, with his picture and his autograph. George Peabody set for a full-length portrait for Mr. Childs. The album of Miss Childs contains the autographs of a great number of the leading men and women of the world. One could linger here for days, but we must see the lovely country seat called Wooten, some distance out from the city. The house is in Queen Anne style, surrounded by velvety lawns, a wealth of evergreen, and exquisite plants, brought over from South America and Africa. The farm adjoining is a delight to see. Here is the dairy built of white flintstone, while the milk room has stained glass windows, as though it were a chapel. The beautiful grounds are open every Thursday to visitors. Here have been entertained the Duke and Duchess of Buckingham, the Duke of Sutherland, Lord Bosset, Lord Dufferin, Sir Stafford, Northcote, Herbert Spencer, John Waller, M.P. of the London Times, Dean Stanley, Thomas Hughes, Dickens, Grant, Everts, indeed the famous of two hemispheres. With all this elegance befitting royalty, Mr. Childs has been a constant and generous giver. For his own city, he was one of the foremost to secure Fairmont Park and helped originate the Zoological Gardens, the Pennsylvania Museum, and the School of Industrial Arts. He gave $10,000 for a centennial exposition. He has been one of General Grant's most generous helpers. Yet while doing for the great, he does not forget the unknown. He gives free excursions to poor children, a dinner annually to the newsboys, and aids hundreds who are in need of an education. He has placed a stained glass window in Westminster Abbey in commemoration of George Herbert and William Cowper, given largely to a memorial window for Thomas More at Bronham, England, for a stone to mark Leah Hunt's resting place in Kensal Green and toward a monument for Poe. Mr. Childs has come to eminence by energy, integrity, and true faith in himself. He has also had a noble ambition and has worked towards it. He has proved to all other American boys that worth and honest dealing will win success in a greater or less degree. That well-known scientist, Professor Joseph Henry of the Smithsonian Institute, said Mr. Childs is a wonderful man. His ability to apply the power of money in advancing the well-being of his fellow men is unrivaled. He is naturally kind and sympathetic, and these generous feelings are exalted, not depressed by his success in accumulating a fortune. Like man in the classification of animals, he forms a genius in himself. He stands alone. There is not another in the wide world like him. Mr. Childs died at 3.01 a.m., February 3, 1894 from the effects of a stroke of paralysis sustained at the ledger office on January 18th. He was nearly 65 years of age. He was buried on February 6th in the Drexel Mausoleum, the Woodland Cemetery, beside his lifelong friend. End of chapter 26 Recording by John Smith